Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Economics textbooks spend a lot of time talking about the manufacture and distribution of stuff, but they pay much less attention to the innovative ideas behind all that stuff. On today's episode, we talk about the economics of innovation. How does it happen? What factors make it more likely? What role, if any, should government play? Entrepreneurs disrupt industries and throw equilibria out of whack. But where would the modern world be without entrepreneurs? The economics of innovation is particularly important to understand at a time when more politicians on both the right and the left are calling for industrial policy. Such proposals raise the question, can and should entrepreneurship and innovation be planned? Joining us today is Arthur M. Diamond, Jr., professor of economics at the University of Nebraska-Omaha. His new book is Openness to Creative Destruction, Sustaining Innovative Dynamism. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Art. I'm looking forward to it. Now, most people, when they think about the main concepts in economics, they think about things like equilibrium, if they ever think about them. They had an economics class. They might have drawn a supply and demand curve and talked about perfect competition and, and all of these things. But but you persuasively argue in your book that we need a little bit more when it comes to understanding of economics. Absolutely. And I, I taught exactly what you were uh, sketching there, the equilibrium standard economics. And I think that's important. I think you can solve a lot of problems. You can avoid a lot of mistakes if you understand that. But what really matters in terms of human betterment, making the world better, making our lives better and longer, is not how do you get back to equilibrium, but how do you move to the next equilibrium? How do you move forward? And that's an issue that uh, was emphasized by Joseph Schumpeter. And uh, in some ways, he's one of my heroes. Uh, but a lot of the economics profession hasn't given it enough tension. And I thought I wanted to see if I could nudge economists and policymakers and everybody a little bit more toward thinking in terms of dynamism, in terms of moving forward rather than just in terms of uh, how do we get back to an equilibrium. Why don't they pay more attention to it? Is it that there's economics as understanding how things work but entrepreneurship looks more like a creative process which is slightly different or why, why is it not privileged in what we talk about? Well, there's more than one reason people have given for that. Uh, one account is that uh, if if you have a hammer, the whole world's a nail. And uh, what economists have are equilibrium models. And so they look to see what can they use those models on. And the models are nice and they kind of pull you in. They have an aesthetic beauty to them. They have a simplicity. They're mathematical. Whereas creativity and dynamism is messier. And it's richer, empirically richer, which I find much more interesting. I spend more time these days reading history and psychology and sociology than I do reading mainstream economics because um, an essay written a few decades ago by Deirdre McCloskey, she, she described it as a thin methodology versus a thick methodology. And the economics is, is thin. It's got a lot of model but not much meat in terms of empirical content. Whereas history and psychology and sociology, you can get a lot more of the of the empirical content. So I think to some extent, uh, economists have become entranced with the models that they're good at and that they know how to apply. And so that leads them to ignore parts of the world that are not so uh, easily uh, uh, put into that framework. I mean, there was a joke. You've probably heard it a million times, but the joke that, that Zvigrilikas told when he knew he was dying, be, looking back on his life, he, he said there's a story of an economist who came along and saw somebody who'd had too much to drink on their hands and knees under a, under a light, a lamp. And they said, what are you doing? I'm looking for my car keys. They said, well, let me come down and help you. He said, this is where you dropped them? And the, and the guy says, no, 
no, no, I dropped him over there, but it's dark over there. <laughs> <laughs> and so then what, what Grilicus says is that if he had a regret from his career, it's that he didn't get down on his hands and knees in the dark where the important issues are and instead stayed under the lamp where you could see but where the important issues weren't. It is interesting because if I, I'm not trained as an economist, but I think like – Many people, at least at least in the Cato building, uh, learned a lot from Econ Talk, for example, and which is a good way of learning economics. But you think about these models and like perfect competition is obviously not possible with human beings and limited knowledge or things like this. And, and then you also with equilibrium, the entrepreneur, the innovator is trying to constantly throw the equilibrium off balance. It's that itself is a fleeting. I mean, Hayek kind of made these points that, you know, equilibrium is like always trying to be maintained, but always being thrown out of balance. And then you have these innovators and entrepreneurs come in, come in and they could completely change the game tomorrow. And then you got to draw new, new grabs and new graphs and maybe even think of new goods and new ways of doing things entirely. Yeah. The usual supply and demand uh, diagrams that we emphasize so much in principles classes and beyond, they take for granted some of what's most important. The, the goals uh, of uh, getting back to equilibrium and having the perfect competition you're talking about is to lower prices. And, in the, and, and that's certainly important. We want lower prices because then we can buy more of stuff. But but the more important issue is how do we get the new stuff that really makes big advances in our lives? And that isn't – you don't see that in the supply and, di and demand diagrams. So you can avoid a lot of bad policy mistakes if you know supply and demand. You can, you can avoid price ceilings imposed by the government. You can avoid price floors uh, that are put in by the government. You can discuss taxes and see the bad effects of taxes all within the supply and demand equilibrium framework. So I'm not saying it's worthless. It's, it's got value. But it doesn't address the main issue, and, and uh, more attention has to be on the main issue. What are these entrepreneurs and innovators and uh, inventors doing, and how are they thinking, and what constrains them when they're trying to make these big leaps? And I think if we look at that, uh, maybe we can you know, make some nudges in policies and institutions to make it easier for them to bring us the great things that will make our lives better. That gets to, I think, that the next question I had, which is when we're – so when we're studying supply and demand curves and we're looking at the effects of taxes and all that, that's like something that exists here in the world that we can we can measure the effects of and study. But it seems like innovation is necessarily unpredicted stuff, right? It's it's changes that people haven't thought of yet. And so how does – how do you as an economist studying innovation go about – studying innovation if all of the innovations are not just things that haven't happened yet, but things that you can't meaningfully have thought of yet? Yeah. I, I had a student uh, last year criticize my book for saying that I have too much that's too far in the past, that he wanted to hear more about what's going on right now. You know, Why don't I have more, more attention to Elon Musk? and uh, less uh, attention to Stevenson who invented the locomotive. And my answer to him was, you know, I, it was, it's a balance. On the one hand, I really am more interested in what's going on now, just like he was. But on the other hand, I don't know what's going to work and what's not. I'm rooting for Elon Musk, but I don't know if he's going to make it to Mars. I hope he does. I think the odds are he won't. But I, if, you, if you study the, the established ones who've succeeded, 
and look and see what what were their obstacles and how what are those some obstacles are necessary because we live in a world where there's laws of physics but there's some obstacles like government regulations that are not necessary so if you look at the historical cases where we already know that these are successes you can come up with conclusions about here's the policies that would be most effective now that's not going to let you predict what the entrepreneurs are going to do with that increased freedom if you let them free if you take the shackles off I can't predict exactly what's going to happen, whether we'll have flying cars soon, uh, you know, or what the next big advance, whether we're, what you can do is you can say, we're going to have faster progress in a bunch of different directions brought about by creative people doing things that we can't even anticipate. And I'm hoping and believing, and I think it would be right if most people would say, that's great. We don't need to have all the details as long as we know that we're going to have progress and it's going to be faster. We're, we're with you. I think it's interesting when you talk about visions of the future. There's a, there's a lot of examples of this, and sometimes you have the you know I see I see no more than five computers. That famous quote, or, or with lacking prediction, uh, I I always found it interesting that we, in every sci-fi movie, there's uh, video phones are everywhere. But they never would predict that we'd all get video phones in our pocket and we completely stop calling each other and we just start writing little messages to each other. No one would have predicted that. Uh, and then also every every sci-fi movie still has taxis. You could have, and they, no, no one's thought of Uber and payphones are quite common in, in sci-fi movies, but they still have taxis. You know, so you have people thinking about new and new robotics and and you know crazy new worlds, but they still have to like hail a cab because uh, no one was like, oh, Uber, that that should be a thing. And of course, if you look at say Popular Mechanics magazine in 1958, what it says the future is going to be like is almost entirely wrong. Uh, what is it about entrepreneurs and innovators? Like, how do they think about the world in a way that's different than say a sci-fi author? who's trying to think new thoughts but is not actually trying to build anything. Well, this is an area where I think there's still an awful lot to learn and I wish I uh, had decades and decades to, to study further. But I, I identify in the book sort of three characteristics that are often the case uh, that go along with entrepreneurs innovating. I talk about the importance of serendipity and I give some examples where that was important. I talk about uh, nimble trial and error experiments. And I talk about having vague, miss, sort of inchoate hunches that sometimes have to be followed up over a long period of time and developed. And, and, and these are these are part, if you look at the serendipitous aspect, part of the reason why we can't predict what's going to happen is serendipitous occurrences happen to individuals. And they have to be – they have to recognize that they're there and they have to think about how can I apply that. And that's something where we can't – each individual, it's you know like the Hayek's point about local knowledge. Um, I, I have serendipitous things happen to me. You have different serendipitous things that happen to you. I'm carrying around in my head some problems that need solving. Maybe I'll be lucky and some serendipitous event will happen that solves a problem I'm carrying around. You're carrying around a different set of problems that you think need solving, and you have a different set of serendipitous events that happen in your life. But I don't know your serendipitous events or the problems you're carrying around, so it's hard for me to predict what you are going to be able to make progress on, what possibly you can – you can uh, innovations you can create. So that's that's part of the reason why the aspects of – the individual aspects of the creativity process, I don't think you can ever get away from them. And in some ways, I think that's wonderful because I, I kind of like individualism. In some ways, it's frustrating because when people ask me, predict, 
is, is people think I, when they hear I'm an economist, they say, what's the, int- what's the really interest rates going to be <laughs> six months from now? And I, I try to say, I don't know, but people don't like that. So then I come up with something, but it's really that I don't know. And I don't, you say, what's going to be the next big innovation? I wanted to end my book on a strong note of saying, okay, here's, here's what we can have. This is, here's some of the good stuff we can have if, if you will, will uh, let innovators be free. And, and the best you can do, I think, is to extrapolate something that is fairly close and possible right now. So at the end of the last chapter, I talk about how if we had less regulation and changed some of our policies in healthcare, we could cure more cancers faster. And uh, I think you can, you can make limited extrapolation, but in terms of the really big things that are further off, um, there were some technology experts back several decades ago who put their predictions into a time capsule. And they predicted uh, uh, the things that you could predict by extrapolation, like they they predicted uh, satellites, that communication satellites. They didn't predict the Internet, and that's because the Internet was so different from anything that was then currently happening that, that very few people had that at all on the radar screen. So um, I, I, I think we can learn more. I there was a there, there's a big issue about how how is artificial intelligence going to take jobs or not take jobs or, or create new innovations or not and so on. And there was a nice I heard a nice interview on uh, Russ had on uh, Econ Talk with uh, I think her name is Melanie Mitchell. I, I got her book, but I haven't read it yet. But one of the points she made is that we underestimate how many things we know that we can't articulate. And this is this is related to some things that that Hayek and uh, uh, Polanyi and other people have said. But uh, if that's that's one of the reasons why entrepreneurs can create more that's unpredictable, but that that turns out to really benefit us if we let them follow what they know that they can't articulate. But unfortunately, a lot of our institutions require that you articulate it before you can get funding or permission to pursue it, and that slows down the things that we can actually be making progress on. I was struck two so two out of the three factors that you listed for innovation are serendipity and hunches. And that made me think so you said economists don't spend a lot of time studying innovation, or at least they don't spend as much time as they should. But one area where you can find lots of stuff on innovation is like in business books. Like the bookshelves are just filled with books that claim to be able to basically systematize innovation. I will teach you how to be a successful entrepreneur. I will teach you how to be a successful innovator. You know, the internet is full of these things. You have TED Talks about it and so on. But if the bulk of it is serendipity, which is basically luck, and hunches, which are kind of by nature something that can't be taught or can't be systematized. It's just feelings you have or insights that suddenly come upon you. Are are all of those sorts of books, I guess, fundamentally misleading? <laughs> I think a lot of them are. Um, and I think they mean well. I think I think a lot of a lot of the people everybody's in favor of innovation. And uh, the, but when push comes to shove, a lot of people are not rewarded on the basis of innovation, and they're not rewarded by by creating the kind of environment where innovation can occur. And so then they have to kind of go against their their current incentive structure, and that some people are willing to do that. There's a nice book by a guy named Gary Klein um, called Seeing What Others Don't, I think was the name of it, something like that. And he he, he talks about how managers in business all say they're in favor of innovation, but you look at how are they judged, how are they evaluated in doing their jobs. They they have annual reviews or quarterly reviews, and they and their and what their their managers will look at is have you met your targets. 
well, if it if you need the slow hunch and if you need the serendipitous, it's highly unpredictable, and you're not going to show good results very often on a on a quarterly basis or on a uh, a yearly even on a yearly basis. Sometimes it takes longer. So anybody who protects their employees, the people under them, any manager who protects the the people who might be thinking on the long term, following an important hunch that might pay off and might not, they're probably going to pay a, a price in terms of their annual evaluation, right? And so uh, there's a, that's why I think that a lot of the big innovations occur in new startups but don't occur in, uh, in established incumbent firms. A um, fellow, we, a great uh, scholar that we lost just a few weeks ago, uh, Clayton Christensen, uh, wrote some good books relevant to this. And he actually tried to get us to be sympathetic to incumbent firms, which is the opposite of the usual attitude. And he said that the problem is they've got so much going against them in terms of being really innovative. There's there's vested interests in doing things the way they've already done them. There's the issues I just talked about in terms of uh, rewarding short-term objectives rather than long-term objectives. And and so what he finally says is that it's going to be the disruptive startup that is going to be the one that's going to innovate because they are free of some of these constraints. Well, that was the blockbuster – it's they had a lot of forces working against Blockbuster to be the one to innovate Netflix. Although they had the movie stockpile, I guess, but they are they were brick and mortar. And so to and so walking into a company and saying, let's move this entire business model over to a different business model uh, versus let's try to protect our business model or maybe even encourage regulations to be passed that make it harder to for Netflix to have its business model and and you mentioned in the book that some companies that have realized this have tried to create uh, it's like what is it skunk works is that the term that I'm it, it is right yeah skunk works. yeah so I mean does that show I mean do, do those skunk work these are kind of totally separate right they're free to do whatever yeah uh Sometimes <laughs> they that, well, I mean, it depends on how committed the parent company is to letting the skunk works continue to operate uh, with autonomy. And uh, you could imagine you could one example where the parent company didn't stick with it was IBM. IBM set up kind of a skunk works uh, down in Boca Raton in a very un IBM ish rundown building to develop the PC and see what they could do with it. And they were given some autonomy for a while, but after they got to, to be succeeding. They got pulled back into the mother ship, and uh, then things slowed down because then they had to go through all the uh, onerous pro uh, processes and committee decision making and all that was the standard, which was a standard IBM procedure. Um, Christensen and co-authors have tried to uh, measure how often this succeeds, at the Skunk Works idea, and they say that if you're in the face of a disruptive innovation. If you don't do it, the chances that you, the incumbent firm, will survive are, I don't remember the exact figure, something like 6%. And they say if you adopt a Skunk Works uh, process and you stick with it and you do it right, you can uh, – the survival rate goes up to 30%. And I, when I talk about this with my students, I say I, uh, those are rough – obviously rough numbers because they're hard to, you know, what, to figure out. But I so said let's say those are right. You got it. You, is that good news or bad news for the incumbent firm? On the one hand, if you do the skunk works, you got you, it increases several times the likelihood that you'll you'll survive. But just still, the odds are you're not going to survive, right? Thirty percent survival is better. Chance of survival is better than seven percent. But still, 
70% chance you're not going to make it. So the incumbent firm's still in a bad spot. And then they discuss some about what are the, is there anything that you can say about which firms are more likely to succeed with a skunk works? And part of what they say is that to succeed, you have to have some powerful people who have the determination to make it happen. And who are the powerful people who could do that? They tend to be people who are founders and who have maintained a substantial control in the company, enough equity that if they want to do something, they can go against other vested interests within the company and make it happen. The, one of their main examples was um, Hewlett and Packard when Hewlett and Packard still were part of Hewlett and Packard. The, somebody came to them with the idea of a, of a new kind of printer and the bread and butter printer at that point, a moneymaker for Hewlett Packard was uh, laser jets. And this was an idea for something that we call an inkjet. And uh, what they did was they set up basically a, uh, a skunk works kind of operation in Boise. And uh, Christensen says if they hadn't been in charge, if it had been just your normal CEO, there probably wouldn't have been the resolve to make it done because the, it's true what what what. What the people would have complained in the incumbent company was, we're doing really well with laser jets. Why are you bringing something in that's going to eat laser jets lunch? And it did. It did take business away from laser jet. But, but what Hewlett and Packard said was, this is the future. This is going to be better. We need to do it. And they did it. So it, it's a discouraging situation for a firm that faces disruption where there aren't people like the founders still in charge. It's a, it's a, a long shot for them to – to do that, to, to uh, self-disrupt and survive. Is that then what would explain, say, Google, Amazon, and Apple? Because when you talked about incumbent, large incumbent firms not innovating, uh, those were the ones that immediately popped to mind because they're they're three of the largest companies in the world, if not the largest companies in the world. Um, but they all seem to be like wildly innovative on an ongoing basis. Um, is that – and I mean I guess in the case of Apple, the founder is not still around but in Google and Amazon, they are. Is that what explains those or are those like exceptions to this rule? No, I, I think you those are good examples and I think even you, you're, you're saying about the, the Apple, the founder is no longer around and I think you could also argue they're no longer as innovative. Um, one of the big co-innovators with, with uh, Jobs was a guy named Johnny Ive. And it was announced in the papers, uh, I don't remember, just the last couple of months, I think, that I was leaving Apple and he had been increasingly detached. The money they're making now, uh, they're making from services, they're moving away. They, they're not saying this so explicitly, but a lot of commentators have noticed that it's, it's services and apps and various things that are not the kind of innovation that Jobs was famous for and that he wanted the company to continue to do. So they're still doing well, but I would predict that it, – I mean, I don't know, so don't don't invest your money on this. On this my prediction, <laughs> but I don't want you to get mad at me. But I, if, I I I would not be at all surprised if they uh, start to go downhill some. And I do think it's an important reason for the success and continuing success of uh, Google and uh, especially of Amazon's a really good example, because uh, is that the founding entrepreneurs stayed on board. I remember back there was a, a nice paper done in economics by a guy named uh, Robert Hall uh, quite a few years ago where he was comparing Amazon and, and eBay and whether their evaluations were totally uh, – their stock market equity evaluations were totally uh, bubble. And he, he was arguing they weren't. But part of the idea back then was that eBay was the dominant one and was likely to be 
to stay the dominant one. And yet the exact reverse happened. And so you scratch your head and say, what is that? People give, why is that? People have given different accounts. But the account I give is that at least in part, I think it's because the founding entrepreneur of eBay jumped ship fairly uh, early on. Um, Pierre Amadiar, I think was his name, whereas Bezos stuck with it. And I call in my book, I call the kind of people who stick with it project entrepreneurs. They're more interested in getting something into the world than they are in uh, making money as a goal in its own sake. They, they like money, but they like money because the money helps them get the project done. But it's not liking money for its own sake. The people who like the money for its own sake are the ones who are more likely to cash out early. And then their company st- slows in its in its achievement of of in continuous innovations. And Bezos, I think it was amazing. I I it's like I back when he 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 was reporting losses quarter after quarter, year after year. And then he had that that easily identified laugh where he would sort of explain what he was doing, and he got away with it. And then he's and now it's paid off. There were skeptics all over the place, including me, but he did it. <laughs> and that's where I wonder. Is is Musk? I'm kind of. If Musk can do what Bezos did, maybe in 20 years we'll be uh, signing up for Mars. Uh, what, uh, possibly. I, I, it was kind of interesting. I've often wondered if Bezos, when he started a bookstore, if he initially just thought it was going to be a bookstore, and at some point a click and is like, I can do everything on the planet and, and have this sort of Elon Musk moment. Um, but on this point of these sort of wildcat innovators, there is. This possibility that the government research, government funding, especially doing high-level research, scientific research, without a, maybe a known technological use to it, but someday can be used. Like the, the government can direct this stuff that we could have government departments of innovation, uh, government research grants, and have and have governments come in and, and help out this sort of innovative dynamism. What would you say to that? Well, they haven't had a very great track record of doing that. Uh, I uh, I I listened to your podcast uh, back a little bit with uh, Terrence Keeley, and I, uh, I I long while ago I I read uh, one of his first book, uh, and I think he makes a, a strong point that if uh, scientific research is done when it's tied to particular technological objectives, even if indirectly tied, it's more likely to stay grounded and useful as opposed to just becoming theory where you're spinning theory on theory that uh, ends up not 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 really giving us much better understanding in a deep sense or in an applied sense either. And uh, if you look at particular projects that's, that uh, they've picked up, I talk in the book, I had to cut way back the content of the book because it was too long, so I don't have as much on this as I wanted to, but I have a little section where I talk about the two main examples that people give of government involvement uh, and that's uh, DARPA in the United States and MIDI in Japan. And when you dig deep into both of those, uh, you don't you find that they're given credit for the Internet. But I think a credible case – I'm talking about uh, DARPA in this case – that a credible case can be made that what really mattered in terms of innovations happened at the private Xerox Park uh, group, not so much. And in fact, the person who was the main person leading DARPA's effort on the internet got frustrated working within the government and uh, jumped ship and became one of the leading people in the private Xerox Park operation. But a lot of the great innovations that were important, um, Ethernet the, by Metcalf, 
um, the mouse, uh, the graphical user interface, those were all done at, at the private Xerox Park. In terms of MIDI uh, in Japan, uh, they put a lot of their money in what turned out to be a much inferior high-definition TV uh, kind of a, a platform. They did not put their money, and this is something George Gilder pointed out, He's he's written about DARPA and uh, in one of and uh, MIDI in one of his books. He points out they missed what was the enormous. They totally missed the what was the enormous innovation of the time period, which was the personal computer. And so uh, he he does give them credit that at one particular point in their history, uh, DARPA taught they they favored lower taxes for business, which he thinks did have some effect in making it easier for startups to start up and to do innovative things. So he thought it, when they did general policy. To argue for less government in some other ways, DARPA, the MIDI made a contribution. But when they tried to pick the winners, uh, they were not uh, doing that so much. So um, I may have strayed. I may have strayed a little bit from your. No, I think that's. But, no. I think government. Well, that's part of the question too. Or if you think about the forces of the political forces that control government money, uh, and the you know the the kind of weird. Uh, out of the right. I mean, iconoclasm that some entrepreneurs have to say, you guys are saying that this is the only way of doing it. And I totally disagree that there's a way of doing this that no one has thought of. Isn't likely to get funding from someone you have to convince is a good idea. Uh, it kind of reminds you if we talk about the Wright brothers in the book a fair amount and the idea that flight on a theoretical level, most people would not have endorsed it. And I actually weirdly saw a, a story this morning in Scientific American called No One Can Explain Why Planes Stay in the Air. Still. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure that really mattered to Wilbur Orville Wright. I hope, it, hope it's not like a cartoon character where we all suddenly realize that we don't know why, why, that, why we're staying in the air and then we fall down. Yeah, that'd be bad. I want to ask though. Um, so Trump Harris phrase creative destruction um, for talking about innovation. One of the things when we talk, when we say like, well, we should cut back on regulations, taxes. We should free up this dynamism. This you know, innovation is good. One of the responses we get, um, it used to be primarily from the left, but it's also increasingly from the right now, is that we're we're underemphasizing the destructive nature of creative destruction, that these innovators are bringing us new things and that's great. But at the same time, they are destroying old industries, destroying old careers and you know, in some ways destroying old ways of life. Whole, and that, Whole towns. Whole maybe. towns, whole regions um, and that that's something that we who are advancing policies to spur innovation need to be taking into account more than we are. Do you think there's anything to that? Well, I think that's a crucial issue. And uh, when I first started thinking about this book and I was going to different academic publishers uh, at the AA meetings and, and saying, would you be interested in a book like this? I remember talking to one and, and giving him the spiel about how important the new goods and the new processes are and how much they benefit humanity. And he kind of was nodding with kind of a slightly smirk on his face. And after I gave my two-minute uh, spiel, he said, well, that's all well and good and most people are going to salute that. But the problem is that people are going to be worried about losing their jobs and that if push comes to shove, if they have to choose between the neat new things and processes and the fragility of losing their jobs, they're going to go with the fragility of losing their jobs and they're going to be against what you're saying. And then he kind of walked off with a sneer. Uh, and I thought, what a jerk. But I also thought, 
he was got he was making a point that's worth thinking about. And so part of what I resolved to do in the book was to take that seriously and to do as best I can to address it and to see how how much truth there was in what his complaint was was that one of my favorite books that does some of the same thing some of the same what I do is a book by Balma Lytton and Schramm called Good Capitalism Bad Capitalism. And it got reviewed in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it was a positive review except near the end. He said the problem with this book is it neglects the elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is job loss and that workers are going to suffer. And that's why most people will reject what they're saying. And it's true that in that book they didn't have it. So in my book I've got uh, something like two and a third chapters that deal with these issues. I think it's a bum rap largely. Part of Part of why I was torn on whether to use the phrase creative destruction or the phrase that I – prefer innovative dynamism is that I think having destruction in the phrase overemphasizes the negative from what it truly is. When I started the project, I thought there were going to be huge trade-offs that we benefit as, as consumers from innovation, but we, we are hurt as workers. And one of what I think is the big con uh, conclusions in my book is that Epiphany is, if you want a fancy word, is that what really matter? What happens is that we benefit both as consumers and as workers. And what I suggest is part of what makes it hard to show this is that people do sometimes lose their jobs, and it gets laid at the uh, at the feet of innovation. And sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's not so clear that it's true. And I give some examples in the book, like. Um, I talk about two camera stores uh, in Omaha when I arrived in Omaha. One was called Dean's. One was called Rook, Rockbrook. And I was sort of an amateur photographer, and so I used both of them at different times. Digital photography started to become an innovation that was growing more popular, and Dean's refused to uh, uh, have anything to do with it. And they, uh, they said film is photography, and this stuff isn't. Uh, Rockbrook embraced it. They started offering, along with their film cameras, digital cameras. They set up kiosks that allowed people to bring in their uh, memory chips uh, that had their photography and to do projects, Christmas cards and such. They gave classes on digital photography. Well, Dean's went out of business. Uh, Rockbrook uh, is flourishing. They now have three stores instead of just one. And you say, okay, was Dean's, the people who worked for Dean's, did they lose their jobs because of innovation and creative destruction or did they lose that's the usual story that's what you would usually say right but uh, you could have another count that i think is maybe right which is that they lost their jobs because they rejected the new uh, better innovations and that if you embrace those innovations the uh, negative effects are are much uh, less so that i mean that's part of my answer Another part of my answer is that I think some of the job loss we that we see is because we have put restrictions on um, innovative firms creating new jobs. We've made it harder for them to do that through regulations. And uh, there's a book that I thought I wasn't going to like that I actually turned out to like a lot more of it than I thought I would by a guy named um, Oren Cass called the, uh, the like death of the, the american worker that one or the once uh, and future worker that one yes yeah. the once and future worker that's that, that's at least real close if not exactly and he's got a, a chapter in there where he talks about maybe a couple chapters talks about regulations he points out that some of the heaviest regulations are things like osha and uh, he says okay who does osha hurt does osha hurt the silicon valley people doing the high tech stuff no it hurts people doing manufacturing 
And who are the people who are working for manufacturing firms? They tend to be some of the least well off. And so our regulations have disproportionately hurt people who a lot of us are most wanting to help. That is the people who are uh, less educated, less maybe less skilled, the people who are trying to improve their lives from a, a low starting point. And uh, I think he's making a point. And I think then you say, okay, how much of the current uh, plight of some of those people that's highlighted in books like uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, Janesville, uh, there's a lot of attention. And, and people on our, on our general side also are concerned about this. Uh, Charles Murray, uh, Michael Munger have both, you know, are worried that technology and innovation is going to have a bad effect on these people, the people who are at the bottom. And my argument is that it's not technology and innovation that's a problem. It's that we were hobbling and overregulating the innovative entrepreneurs who would be creating jobs for people such as them. And we're, and we're disproportionately regulating and hobbling the creation of those kinds of jobs. Um, I've got I'm working on a paper now that expands on my idea of the robustly redundant labor market. And part of my argument is people, the workers will accept innovations if they know that if they did buy, lose a job due to uh, innovation, that there'd be another job just as good, fairly quickly waiting for them. And that's what I basically mean by a robustly redundant labor market. We don't have that uh, as much as we should right now. And why is it? Because we restrain firms from uh, part, part of it, I say, what, what do you expect entrepreneurs to do, innovative entrepreneurs? Entrepreneurs find uses for things that, other, that haven't previously had a use. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, a few months ago on the front page where they have the quirky you – know, there's a quirky article in every, on the front page of every issue. Well, this was their quirky one on a particular day. Uh, they, they're, they're our, uh, 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 there, there's this uh, cotton, this weed that produces stuff like, like cotton. Uh, if you open the pod. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to like to open those pods and see the stuff float off. Well, that's totally worthless. Farmers hate that stuff. And yet somebody now has come, an entrepreneur has come and found that that stuff is good insulator for parkas. And so now there are farmers actually growing these these weeds. And, uh, and, and, and what was per previously a weed is now a resource. Well, if there's another article, New York Times, a few months ago, where there's misshapen, not quite rightly made cornflakes that usually get thrown away. There's some, some, some entrepreneur has figured out that if you take those, you can make a really good tasting beer out of them, right? And so, and so here's the, the, the argument is if entrepreneurs who are alert and looking for opportunity can make something out of weeds and bad cornflakes, can't they find something that they can make use of with workers who are less skilled or less well-educated? And if they're not, why not? Well, then I give a more practical example, which is there was a firm that, that is no, well-known for having tried to do something like this, which is Nucor, the steel company. And what Nucor did was uh, they did something real strange. They didn't hire people with any experience in steel. They hired farmers. And you say, okay, farmers don't know anything about making steel. Well, that's true. But they said that farmers had certain character traits that we can work with. They, they are used to working hard. They're used to getting up. They're used to 
to to be willing to try a lot of different things because they have to on their farm. And so there's a neat book called American Steel where they talk about the Nucor plant that was put up, an innovative plant in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And they talk about how these farmers made mistakes and they did dangerous things in the process of learning how to do what they were doing. And this firm got nailed again and again by OSHA. They was constant fighting with OSHA. But after a year and a half, they had steel workers who used to be farmers and they were doing innovative. Apart from that, they were doing innovative things also in terms of how they were making the steel. And the problem was what you get from that is they were burdened by government regulations in bringing jobs to the sort of people who most need jobs. And if we freed them and allowed others to do what Nucor did under great duress and stress, then I think there'd be less cases where you could say there was a great uh, harm and penalty going to workers from innovation. How much does the profit motive matter in this? I mean, it's 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 discussed a lot, but I th- I don't think it's highlighted even in the proper way by free market advocates, where the the desire to find inefficiencies and fix them and then be able to profit from that is why people want to find inefficiencies. And it's something I bring up all the time in healthcare where it's like you've, if you, you have to have someone like, – I mean, I, I would argue it's immoral to not let people profit off of the healthcare business because you have to have someone who sees a better, more efficient way of doing things and can profit from that because if you don't have that, then no one is out there looking essentially. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. Uh, there's a guy I had never heard of, but uh, heard of in the last few months in Oklahoma, who's got a a, a pro- for-profit uh, uh, surgical the surgery uh, center of Oklahoma. Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. that's it. I think that's it, and uh, I think that'd be an example of what you're talking about. On the broader issue, um, I'm I'm torn a little bit because the what I emphasize in the book most. I I praise and show all of the good that comes from innovative entrepreneurs, and I and I say there's different motives for different innovative entrepreneurs. Some of them have profit as their motive. Some of them have um, fame or winning a contest as their motives. Some of them have getting a project into the world as their main motive. Just the challenge and, of it. Well, not just no. Uh, I mean that that could be part of it, but. Uh, but I would emphasize more that they want – the phrase I like is one that Jobs used, which is uh, uh, when he famously – when he was trying to recruit uh, Scully from – who was work, uh, a lower-level executive at uh, Pepsi. He said to Scully, do you want to spend the rest of your life uh, selling sugar water or do you want a chance to make a ding in the universe? And then Scully reports that when you put it that way, it's hard to keep selling the sugar water. So he went over to Apple and and uh, uh, I so it's making a ding in the universe, which is a little different than the challenge, because a lot of things are challenging. Um, I studied Latin in college and uh, it was challenging, but I don't know if it made a ding, helped me make a ding in the universe. Uh, the, the, the thing is, I, I view mo- you know, project entrepreneurs want money. But they want money not as a metric of success or fulfillment. They want money to help them get the project done. And I think that's sometimes a subtle difference. But I think people who are in it for the project rather than in it for the money are actually likely to be more successful in making a ding in the universe than those who are in it for the money. Because I think one of the things that happens for the people who are in it for the money is they jump ship too early. 
like they have the IPO and it's part of their plan to have the IPO and then sit back and be a venture capitalist for the rest of their adult life. Whereas the people who take the big risks, there was a time, I mean, if you read about Zuckerberg, there was a time he could have had an early IPO and been had huge number of millions of dollars just to sit back and use the rest of his life. But he had ideas about how to make Facebook better and he needed to stay in control to be able to do it. So the motive there is not profit because at least it's not mainly profit. It's mainly wanting to get the job done. And even if you risk the profit, you know, because the people who cash in early, sometimes the people who stick with it, they risk that they won't have the chance of cashing in. Things will go south in the firm and they will, they'll have wished that they cashed in early like some of the, like, like Amadar did with the eBay. So I think the profit motive, um, a lot of good things can come from it. But I think the a lot of times the best things come from a, a different motive, which is to want to make a ding in the universe. For that, you need the money. And, uh, and it's money as an enabler, but not as a goal. You mentioned venture capitalists. And so what is their role in this? Because in the we, we think right now of what's the most dynamic sector of the economy, it's the tech sector and it's Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley is largely driven by venture capital and angel investors. So what role are they playing in this innovative process? And is their role different than – there's always been investors in businesses. But is there something unique about the, the nature of that kind of funding structure? I, I think I still have a lot to learn on this and, and, and my position um, may change. But I'm kind of skeptical of venture capitalists uh, in some ways. There, we talked earlier in our conversation about – mentioned uh, Christensen. And one point he makes in The Innovator's Solution, a book with Rainer, is uh, that venture capitalists did a great disservice to many firms in the dot-com era because the venture capitalists um, – pushed those firms to grow fast and not to be profitable fast. And there's a chapter in that book where, where Christensen says that his advice is you, you want to make a profit fast and grow slow. He thinks of make, having this idea that, that you need to be making a profit early on is a way to discipline the firm and give the firm direction and feedback that it's on the right path and to make corrections in an early stage. But a lot of the venture capitalists, they poured money on these dot coms that were growing without worrying about profits. And then at some point, uh, things all of a sudden went bad and they didn't they didn't have any reserves. They'd used all their money. They also didn't have any discipline in terms of their spending. So a lot of them went under that might not have gone under. He calls that bad money. It's basically um, the story of season two of Silicon Valley, if you've ever seen that show. <laughs> I, I've wanted to, but I've never watched it. I've never, I've never it's had, it's like, worth it, like it especially show. for understanding yeah, right. VCs. Yeah. So, uh -huh. so, but so, what, so what's better than VCs then? I, I think to some extent that you're not going to be able to get away from self-funding. And especially at the early stages is what I emphasize most. Uh, if you look at all, almost all the great innovators, they have what uh, – some people call skin in the game. I guess Nassim de Taleb made a big deal of that phrase. But they, what they, the, the part of the problem is if you, if what's involved is serendipity, and if what's involved is knowledge that's hard to articulate, especially at the early stages, it's going to be hard to convince um, anybody that this is a good use of their money, especially if they have a fiduciary role where they're responsible to the taxpayers or to the investors, they're going to want to be able to make a case that's articulate and it's going to be hard. So how is how are you going to be able to to finance it 
you're going to need to finance it yourself. And if you look at case after case, you look at, at Apple, we've talked about Apple some, uh, Steve Jobs sold his, uh, his old van. Um, his buddy Wozniak sold his HP calculator. This is back at a time when calculators cost several hundred dollars a piece. Um, they, 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 they got investment, a little bit of help in terms of where to, 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 to do the work from Steve Jobs' father, let him use the garage. So they were, they were self-financing. At a stage where they'd gotten a little further, Jobs went to his old boss, who was the head of Atari, a guy named Bushnell, and uh, said, uh, uh, would you invest $50,000? And for that, I'll give you a third of the equity in Apple. And Bushnell knew uh, Jobs. He, he'd, he'd, he'd hired him. Um, he knew technology. He was you know, head of our Atari. He turned down that offer, right? Because he thought it was too speculative, and if you think about it, that's that could be the biggest investment mistake in the history of the world, right? <laughs> to have had a third of a, of the of the most success, successful company, or at least one of the two or three most successful. It's like Pete but, Best uh, being kicked out of the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he say he says he doesn't have regrets, but I can't. Believe it. <laughs> but uh, venture cap, Amar Bidet's uh, another person who's written some interesting stuff on uh, entrepreneurship, and he says that. If you look at a lot of the venture capitalists, what they tend to do is they still want a business plan. They want something that is uh, innovative but not too innovative because they want to be able to evaluate what are the prospects this is going to succeed. So he says the paradigm kind of case of a firm they're going to support is Compaq back when it started. Compaq was being was going to make something kind of like what IBM's personal computer was. It was going to be more portable, although it really wasn't that portable if you, if you ever saw one. But it uh, And it was going to be run by people who had a track record of running companies. So it was a little riskier than the average investment, but it was still not that risky. It wasn't going to be a total breakthrough new thing. And uh, so what part of what Bidet says is you can't – there's not enough venture capital and also it's going to be too risk averse if you're looking at it as the main source for the really major innovations. Um, and there's other arguments you can make. Uh, they, 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 and th this is this is one of those half empty, half full arguments. Sometimes the advantage of venture capital is said, well, they'll give you mentorship and advice. But the other, on the other side of that, sometimes the mentorship and advice is not good mentorship and advice. And I've seen people argue both ways. It's certainly in the case of the Silicon Valley dot com era. If Christensen's right, their advice and mentorship there was not good. But there's this thing, Y Combinator, um, that uh, in Silicon Valley, where there's a lot of people saying that Y Combinator does give good advice and helps these young fledgling firms. But even if you buy that, they're doing it for a limited set of innovative firms. They're, they're doing the dot-com thing. There's a neat uh, passage from the Frackers, a book about uh, the innovators behind fracking by a guy named uh, Zuckerman. And he's uh, he reporting it's a conversation that one of the main entrepreneurs, a guy named George Mitchell, had, and he he was upset and was really complaining. These venture capitalists won't give me a dime. I'm trying to do this, and 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 uh, and I when I talk to my students about this, I say, you think about why wouldn't they? Well, the people who are the venture capitalists were mainly used to funding people in Silicon Valley, and these fr people developing fracking in Oklahoma and Texas, they didn't look like. Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. They didn't sound like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. They were they were profane. They usually weren't very well educated. 
they were you know salt of the earth kind of people and there wasn't they weren't getting any money so they had to self fund and it, I, so what i argue is that that that's going to be the case and likely to be the case venture capital i do want to i do want to say on the other hand economists always say on the one hand on the other hand <laughs> on the other hand at later stages venture capital has helped some important firms do good things and one of my illustrations of the book of the the how a, how regulation can restrain innovation is to talk about what happened with the first venture capitalist, a guy named uh, uh, Dorio, George Dorio. Uh, the SEC came in and was trying to shut him down. They knew nothing about what he was up to because he was doing something new. And he wrote these really passionate memos about how they were slowing him down and keeping him doing from doing something that now we recognize as a great innovation. I'm, I'm saying it's not as great as some people think, but still it's good. And uh, the SEC was sending people who didn't know anything about it, but who were making it really hard for him to do what we now see as something that was positive. So on that, on that point, a question um, with this whole conversation, are we take, do we take innovation for granted and not understand that there's ways that it can be, there's, it can be somewhat fragile, that it could be sh throttled or destroyed if you, if you overregulate or, or take away different parts of the economic system? Yeah, I, I, we do take innovation for granted sometimes, uh, and I and this is true of some very good people like uh, Kevin Kelly, who uh, he wrote a book called "What Technology Wants," and he's got some great parts in there talking about uh, the Amish and their attitudes toward technology and about how old technologies never totally leave us. But one of the things I don't like about his book is that he he thinks that technology will just continue forward no matter what policies or institutions you have. He gives an example in a blog entry related to the book where he says that uh, if you had technology, if you had a society and economy run by communist dictators, Moore's law would still continue. You'd still continue to have this great advance in, com in computing power year after year after year. And there's a nice book by Pagan Kennedy where, where she – quotes him on that, but then several chapters later talks about invention within the Soviet Union in the time of Stalin. And it turns out that uh, you know the inevitability just wasn't there. The, the, by any measure, patents or any other measure, inventiveness in the Soviet Union fell precipitously uh, under Stalin. And then, uh, I don't know if I, it's my remark or her remark, I can't remember, but one of us says that maybe it had something to do with the great number of uh, inventors who were either imprisoned uh, or executed by Stalin. And so there isn't, it's not inevitable. I mean, this is an extreme example, but you really can slow down invention. You really can chain Prometheus. And if you want Prometheus to bring fire, to bring the great innovations that make life better, uh, you have to take the chains off. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.